Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. After the dissolution of the Soviet Union, many state-owned assets, like the vast oil fields of Siberia, were privatized. A handful of Russians became fantastically wealthy, the oligarchs of the new Russia of the 1990s. One of them, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, became the richest man in Russia. And then he challenged Vladimir Putin, and in 2003, he was arrested, tried, and convicted, and then imprisoned. A decade later, he was granted a pardon by Putin and released. And now, Mikhail Khodorkovsky advocates for reforms in Russian society from afar. The Economist has described him as, quote, the Kremlin's leading critic in exile. Oscar-winning director Alex Gibney examines the rise and fall and rise of Mikhail Khodorkovsky in his latest documentary, Citizen K. It's currently showing at New York's Film Forum through the 28th, and I'm very pleased that it brings Alex Gibney to our show now. Hi. Hey, how are you? Good to talk to you. Long time. Yeah, we, uh, we've we talked a lot in the past because you've made so many interesting films. But this, <laughs> I found this one really filled in so many blanks for me. I, was, uh, I really didn't understand the whole transition until I saw this film. And I thank you very much for doing it. Uh, how, old, how did uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky become one of Russia's oligarchs in the first place? Well, I mean, he was... Um he grew up in the Soviet Union, or he was a young man in the Soviet Union. And then when things turned in um, in the late 80s, early 90s, he, by all accounts, got himself a grub stake by peddling black market um, computers and blue jeans. And then during this wild, the sort of inauguration of this Wild West period, he ended up understanding, as few did, you know, how to play this new game of capitalism, which was kind of, on the one hand, purely unregulated capitalism. On the other hand, this sort of crazy system whereby the Russian government decided to give everybody a piece of state enterprise. And they handed out these things called vouchers and, uh, you know, which were kind of like shares to the company. But nobody really understood the whole idea of capitalism and what they meant. So what Hadakovsky did was he went around and started buying up those vouchers for pennies on the ruble and uh, and ended up owning a lot of uh, smaller state-run enterprises. And then with, with that, he then decided to start a bank. And then he was really off and running. The big thing, well, but he, though, but he came from what was, in effect, a middle-class family. Uh, indeed, his parents how, were engineers, what, sort of Soviet did, engineers. Yeah, so what, what did he know about finance or banking? Is this all something that he learned on the fly? He, just, he said, he, he, when, he, when he became a banker, <clears throat> he took out a book called, uh, the, it was kind of like Banks for Dummies. <laughs> <laughs> How to run a bank, and and he went through it chapter and verse and studied it, and then learned how to implement it. It was literally <laughs> something he read in a book. He says that all his life he's done been interested in things that explode. So, what were the uh, the explosions? The first was the dissolution of the Soviet Union and privatization. The second. Well, yeah, that was. I mean, he was talking about how you know he he was. He grew up near Cosmonaut Boulevard and was always interested in rockets. Uh, but I, but certainly I think the, the biggest explosion was the explosion of the Soviet system. And he really profited greatly from the, the debris that, that, that followed. He understood 
how, uh, in ways that others didn't, how to pick up the pieces. Now, Boris Yeltsin was in power when the, the change occurred. Uh, weren't there people in the government who considered other means of privatizing or other economic models like the Swedish one? How did they wind up with this voucher system, which sounds well, to me a bit crazy? It is a bit crazy. And look, they were also advised by various people, including some um, laissez-faire capitalist American advisors who said, you've got to go cold turkey. Um, now, I, I, you know, in retrospect, that was a terrible idea because this brought tremendous dislocation. And, you know, say what you like about the, the Soviet system. It was uh, stultifying. Uh, it was economically disastrous, but it was stable. And, and, and people had a sense that they weren't going to starve, uh, at, at least unless they, they ran afoul politically of somebody like Joseph Stalin. Um, so uh, suddenly, you know, you you had to make decisions every every five minutes. And if you, if you made the wrong decision, you wouldn't eat that week. And it was, uh, it was a really difficult period for people. And I think what the, the, the big mistakes made in retrospect were, one, you know, there, there wasn't a sense of a, 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 any real sense of an independent judiciary that would uh, essentially act as a, a, a fair broker between people with contractual disputes and, and indeed <laughs> criminal issues. Uh, and the other was that there weren't any real rules of the road in terms of how to run um, a capitalist system like this. Uh, and, and, and the last thing was, I don't think they properly reckoned with how to create a baseline for, for, for Russia's citizens in a way that made this whole system fair so they could give everyone a, a proper um, stake in, in this wholesale um, giveaway of these state assets. Now, Mikhail Gorbachev had begun some privatization in the late 1980s by transferring some control to employees, and then in 1990 by turning some state enterprises into joint stock companies. Uh, what did uh, Russians know of private enterprise uh, 70 years after the, the Bolshevik Revolution? Nothing. In, in, in point of fact, private enterprise had been illegal. If you, if you engaged in capitalism, that was a crime. So... <clears throat> So that was the biggest problem of all. And Nobody then, had any experience in, in terms of doing this. So then uh, Yeltsin, as you say, uh, he uh, issued vouchers. He was, the at the time, the first president of the new Russian Federation. Uh, how did those assets end up controlled by just a handful of oligarchs? Were they the only ones who, who really understood the system? That was part of it. And in the early days with this whole voucher system, like I said, Hodakovsky, for example, would take people from his company in a big bus and they'd roll up to another company at lunch hour. They'd buy for kopecks on the ruble, you know, these vouchers from workers who'd be streaming out of the company. And the next thing you know, they'd, they'd own that company. That was one way. But the biggest and most pernicious deal that was cut uh, was a political deal with Boris Yeltsin. And that was when, uh, that was in 1996, when Yeltsin was running for re-election. And, and while he was a heroic figure a number of years before, standing on the tank and, um, and, 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 and rallying Russians, you know, behind Gorbachev when it, when it looked like there was going to be a coup, uh, by 1996, he had, he had fallen into <laughs> a 
sort of an alcoholic haze. He was in terrible health. Uh, the economy was not doing well at all. He couldn't pay pensions. He couldn't pay, you know, state salaries. And so, uh, and he had a 3% approval rating. So things looked pretty dire. But at the same time, there was a guy running for president, a guy named Zuganov, who was a communist, who was going to take everybody back to the way things were. Now, the oligarchs, the last thing they wanted was that. So they came up with this unholy bargain. It was called loans for shares. And basically what they did was they gave the state, i.e., uh, and, and Boris Yeltsin was running the state, they gave the state hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and in exchange, the state uh, basically put up uh, these, uh, you know, the, the, the right to acquire these huge state-run companies as collateral. Well, um, Yeltsin did get elected thanks to the infusion of all that cash. But then the deal was that these oligarchs basically got the rights to these enormous companies. And that's how Mikhail Khodorkovsky got Yukos, which was a huge globe-girdling oil company for... I think, I think he got it for the equivalent of about $300 million, and it was worth something like, I'm going to forget this now, but 4 to $6 billion. So it was a steal. Now, uh, when did the observers start calling Khodorkovsky and the others like him oligarchs? And I had always assumed that the oligarchs were people who already were in positions of power, like factory managers and such, directors of, of certain industries, who just simply um, took power in a different way. That, that's not true. No, they were capitalists who, who amassed a, a tremendous fortunes. And, and, you know, part of the early days of this um, Wild West period of capitalism was how you basically disseminate the, the assets of the state into the market. And, and, and there were a lot of very dodgy deals in terms of how that worked. And it's, it's also said of Hodakovsky that once he began to be a banker, he did other things, too, like he would hold the money for a worker salaries for a month or two, make money on the money, and then pay it late. You know, so there are lots of ways in which um, these uh, new capitalists were making money hand over fist, in part because of this uh, gray area between what was the state and what was the market. But um, by, you know, the time Putin comes to power, which is right after Y2, right at the moment of Y2K in 2000, just as the clocks turn over, uh, these guys, seven of them, owned 50 percent of the Russian economy. Now, some people have uh, criticized you for not being more sympathetic to Khodorkovsky, but he, uh, he wasn't always such a good guy, as you point out. I think that... He wasn't. I mean, uh, let, let's just be honest and say that he was ruthless and he exploited a terrible situation for his own benefit uh, early on. And that's what made him enormously wealthy. But I think over time, you know, Khodorkovsky changes. And, and the mystery of this story is whether we believe in that change or not. I happen to believe in that change, but, but other people don't. And, and what began to happen, particularly, you know, after 1998, in 1998, the ruble fell. Suddenly, everyone's money was worth next to nothing, and oil prices dropped through the floor. So Hodakovsky had to go in and lay off tens of thousands of people. And I think he saw up front that, um, that capitalism wasn't a game, which is how he thought of it up to that point. It was the way that people survive. And that taught him, I think, a lesson that, uh, that would stand him in good stead as a citizen in, in, in years beyond. 
Now fast forward a few more years to uh, the early 2000s. This is a period where Vladimir Putin comes to power. Basically, Boris Yeltsin bequeaths power to to Putin um, in, uh, like I say, just about midnight, 1999. And Putin initially looks like he's going to be the guarantor of the wealth of the oligarchs. Uh, and, and he kind of says, look, I'm going to make a deal with you guys. You guys stay out of politics and uh, I'll stay out of the economy. But uh, Hadakoski didn't stay out of politics. He became interested in ideas like democracy, the rule of law. And um, coincidentally, these would be helpful to him as he pursued uh, international uh, mergers, including one with Exxon. Um, that would help to enrich him. But nevertheless, he got interested in those ideas, and that put him on a collision course with Vladimir Putin. Over the years, hasn't Putin relied on the oligarchs to some degree? He has to the ones who are loyal to him. And that's, uh, you know, er, in the early 2000s, there were two oligarchs, uh, Vladimir Guzinski and Boris Berezovsky. Berezovsky, I should add, was basically the man behind the scenes who was responsible for whispering in Yeltsin's ear that he should appoint Putin to the presidency. And he'll come but, into our story a little later as well, because uh, he plays an important role in the story. He does. And now one of the businesses that Berezovsky got was a TV network. Mm. And um, that was taken from him by Vladimir Putin. And he was uh, sent packing and he ended up in London. Uh, Guzinski also had his network taken from him. Um, say what you like about the 90s in terms of the kind of economic chaos it had. It, it was a period of enormous press freedom, and the press was free to ruthlessly criticize uh, politicians, even the most powerful politician, Boris Yeltsin. And Boris Yeltsin took it. He didn't shut them down. Putin took a very different point of view, uh, and he thought that the, the way to maintain his power would be to control those. So those two oligarchs were, were sent packing, and that left the biggest and richest oligarch, uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, uh, to be confronted in an epic exchange in 2003. I'm speaking with Alex Gibney, whose latest film is Citizen K. Uh, it's currently running at the Film Forum. We'll be running through next week, uh, the, the 28th of next week. This is Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. You describe the Russian economy as gangster capitalism, and a British journalist, Martin Sixsmith, calls it Wild West capitalism. Uh, what, was, were crime rates going through the roof in Russia at this time? Crime rates were going through the roof, not only crime rates, but murder rates, you know, extortion. Once you start to see enormous wealth um, gather in the hands of fewer and fewer people, it made them easy targets for people who would extort, rob, steal, um, and, and sometimes kill in order to get that money. And so uh, it was a pretty violent time. And um, one of the people I interviewed ended up going to Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who had his own gang of toughs. I mean, former KGB people who had Kalashnikovs, you know, sort of sticking out of long leather jackets. Um, uh, this guy, Derek Sauer, who uh, ran a fledgling young newspaper called the Moscow Times, went to Khodorkovsky for protection. Because really, in those days, if you didn't have muscle, you were going to get muscled by people looking to extort you uh, and possibly kill you if you didn't uh, play ball.
Haven't some alleged that Khodorkovsky had people killed? Is there evidence there are, to support? There are a lot of people who believe that Yukos, his firm, either had people killed or killed them. Um, and there was a famous case involving the mayor of a town called Neftyugansk in western Siberia, in which, uh, w- w- which was a, a battleground for a long time between Yukos, Khodorkovsky's company, and the mayor. You know, the mayor accused Khodorkovsky of not paying taxes. Khodorkovsky accused the mayor of giving all the taxes to Chechen gangsters instead of paying salaries to the nurses and doctors. And uh, they finally did secure a deal. But a few days after that, as it happened on Khodorkovsky's birthday, uh, the mayor was brutally assassinated. Uh, As as somebody noted to Khodorkovsky when they called him, his brain spilled out on the street. And so there were a lot of people who felt that Khodorkovsky might have had something to do with that murder. The the journalist Anna Politkovskaya was murdered on Putin's birthday. Is there special significance in Russia attached to when someone is murdered on one's birthday? There seems to be a certain tradition, and and that, in in a sense, is a kind of nod to the Godfather, a sort of gangster-like tradition. Very often, it's 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 thought that these murders are not necessarily ordered from the top, but um, they're done. By underlings with the knowledge that such a murder might please the boss. Um, that was the, the view of some people about the murder of the Chilean uh, chief of staff, uh, uh, Rene Schneider, uh, when he was murdered, um, perhaps because he displeased Henry Kissinger. But I don't think that was done on Kissinger's birthday. But these would be birthday presents, in a sense. Yes, that was, in effect, the idea, that they would be birthday presents. And you have footage of Khodorkovsky's home, which is fortified like a modern castle. Did he fear that he might be targeted? I think that he had a pretty robust security service. And most of these wealthy oligarchs had compounds like that. Khodorkovsky's compound is where all of his key lieutenants also lived, in sort of adjoining mansions. And there was a big gate. It was monitored by guards who were brandishing weapons. I mean, it's pretty well fortified. It's very nice inside. Um, it's still there, that compound, no longer <laughs> owned by Hodakovsky. Well, he's now living in London. Uh, and uh, do, does he fear, since some people have been assassinated while they're in exile, that he still might be a target? It's strongly believed that he is under a kill order by some members of um, the Russian Secret Services. Um, That said, when I was filming Khodorkovsky in London and walking around the streets with him, he was not um, sort of uh, ringed by security forces with, uh, you know, uh, earpieces. I didn't see them at all. He, He his view is. If somebody wants to kill him, they're going to kill him. And I think he's hiding in plain sight. And and his view also, after spending so many years in prison, is I'm not going to live my life in fear. So he, he uh, on a regular basis, um, well, he's, you know, he, I, I think that for reasons that are both um, macho and reasons that are in some way... Um, Mindful, uh, he just prefers not to live in fear, and so he, he's not surrounded by by guards at all. Well, they they can get you all sorts of different ways. Uh, they put, can put they poison can on your doorknob. 
Yes, well, and, and we've seen that, obviously. There's, there's a, um, a rather famous commentator in Russian television who says in the film, London can be a pretty dangerous place for people who um, criticize the Russian government. And uh, obviously the Skripals who were attacked by a Novichok attack, as you say. There was also um, the uh, Litvinenko, who was poisoned to death um, in London. And even Hodakovsky's lawyer went down in a plane crash, or sorry, a helicopter crash, uh, in ways that were extremely suspicious. Martin Sixsmith quotes Boris Berezovsky as saying that seven of the oligarchs controlled 50% of the Russian economy, which sounds like uh, the direction the United States is headed right now. Indeed. How much uh, power did Khodorkovsky and the others really have? Were they directing decision-making in Russia, or were they just free to do whatever they wanted with all the wealth that they'd accumulated? Well, it depends on who you ask. I mean, Boris Berezovsky, I think, was much more interested in guiding the political system than Khodorkovsky was. That said, there are many people who believe that Khodorkovsky was, in effect, buying up members of the Duma, or certainly buying influence in the Duma, Russia's representative body. And that, I think, is what caught the attention of Putin, that, Putin, that Khodorkovsky was attempting to engineer um, a way of pushing Putin out. And that's what that's what that, that, that's how they came to clash in 2003 in a famous a televised um, exchange about corruption. It was supposed to be a kind of town meeting about corruption. But in this town meeting on live television for the nation, Khodorkovsky more or less accuses Putin of corruption himself. Well, even before that, uh, after they had amassed all their wealth, didn't the oligarchs then lend money to Yeltsin's government? Uh, well, that uh, was part of that thing I, I, I referred to earlier, that, that unholy deal, hmm. uh, loans for shares, where they lent Yeltsin hundreds of millions of dollars in exchange for huge stakes in these um, state companies. Uh, and that's how the Guzinski and... and um, that's how Guzinski and uh, Berezovsky got their networks. That's how Hodakovsky got his oil company. Uh, this were, uh, it was a quid, quid pro quo, to use another phrase we're becoming increasingly familiar with. Now, why did they, so many of them moved to Britain? Couldn't, wouldn't they have uh, had uh, uh, more protection if they'd come to the United States? Perhaps, but one thing that... Um, is tremendously advantageous in Britain if you are an oligarch is that its tax policy is considerably more friendly um, in terms of um, uh, your assets that may be held elsewhere. So I think I think uh, it's closer to Russia, but it's it's also a lot more friendly uh, from a tax perspective. And now with uh, the possibility that Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. Um, talk regularly on the telephone, you'd think that it would uh, even be less likely that they'd want to come here. But uh, as we pointed out earlier, Barazovsky died in 2013, and people question whether it was a suicide. It's kind of like the Jeffrey Epstein story. Indeed. You know, there was a lot of question as to whether it was a—he um, was strangled by his own cashmere scarf. And the question is, did he wrap it around his neck or did somebody else? A lot of people I've talked to who know this story pretty well think it was suicide, but there, there, there have been a number of people who also believe it may have been murder. So uh, Putin's rise 
is remarkably fast. He had been a KGB officer. How did he wind up so uh, in, in a position of so much power so quickly? He was fairly young at he, the time. He was, but he, he became good at doing, getting things done for politicians. The first person to whom he apprenticed himself was the mayor of St. Petersburg, a man named Subcheck. Um, Subject's daughter, uh, I should say, is a famous sort of TV personality and now becomes has become sort of the official opposition in Russia, you know, funded by the Kremlin, but routinely running for president to pretend that, that there is a democracy going on. But anyway, so so Putin worked for Subcheck and then uh, worked a number of uh, bureaucratic jobs in Moscow, including being head of the FSB, the, the sort of successor to the KGB. Um, and he curried favor with a lot of powerful people, including Boris Berezovsky. Mm-hmm. And he's put in, um, and, 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 and a lot of people, and Yeltsin's um, daughter and a son-in-law also felt very powerfully about Putin, that he was a guy who was a can-do kind of guy. He, so in he effect, was, was promising to make Russia great again. Indeed, he was. And, and, and he got his chance. And I think that, you know, he was a he was a person, a politician who's a clever politician. When when we went out to the to Siberia ourselves, we went to this town of Neftugansk. Everybody we talked to said we love Putin out here. Um, but I think he through television, he helped to manufacture himself as a kind of uh, James Bond like uh, superhero who would save Russia and bring stability back to the country. Um that it was missing thanks to those oligarchs who were so, you know, greedily stirring things up. And frankly, Russia was a, an unstable place. Putin, the secret to the secret sauce for Putin, though, was that as soon as he gets into uh, office, oil prices start soaring and uh, the Russian economy is awash with cash from from selling all that oil. Uh they were, but they were selling it uh, abroad at the same time. Uh, hasn't Putin troubled Europeans and some people in the United States because uh, under him, Russia has challenged the expansion of Western power? Indeed. I mean, I, I think that um, one of the things that Putin has very much tried to do is to um, find a way to show the world that Russia can be. Uh, as great, again, as it was during the period of the Soviet Union, and to resist Western expansion. You, as you put, and, into, and by the way, integration into a sort of a European-style political economy. You know, that was, uh, I think, at the heart of the conflict in the Ukraine. In, in sorry, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, we'll... We uh, people here tend to put the the in front of Ukraine and yeah yeah I, I, I have a bad habit of doing the same thing too and then uh, there's all of that uh, disagreement over how you pronounce the capital of Ukraine <laughs> then right. I, I've seen four different spellings recently right. Yeah. Right. exactly so um, do you agree with Arkady, Arkady Ostrovsky the former Financial Times journalist who is now at the Economist who said that the oligarchs were instrumental in bringing Putin to power I, I do. I mean, I think was that because thought, of the uh, financial crisis? Did they see him as somebody who might stabilize the country? They saw him as somebody who might stabilize the country, but I thought that they, I think they also saw him as somebody who would guarantee their wealth. That is to say, he would make sure not to roll back the clock to sort of undo the unholy deals that they had done in the '90s with Yeltsin. 
Um, but it turned out that uh, if they were disloyal, Putin uh, took a very different opinion and was only too happy to take away their fortunes if it meant that they were going to challenge Putin politically. So is that when Khodorkovsky started to take a greater interest in politics? He did. Um, uh, you know, I, I think for a number of reasons. One, because I think it was going to benefit him uh, economically, particularly to create uh, rules of the road in Russia that would allow him to ultimately merge Yukos with a, uh, an American company, in this case Exxon. But I also think he believed in it, that he believed that the idea, you know, that, that, that Russia was troubled because it didn't have, um, you know, a very good rule of law. And uh, and it needed um, democracy. And he saw, I think, the dangers of Putinism, which is all power flowing to the top. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. I found my field on Blueberry Hill. Did you know that Vladimir Putin was also a singer? I did not, but that, I was delighted is, to learn. I was delighted to learn that he was, particularly for that particular tune. Yeah, he uh, he was singing that at a charity dinner in St. Petersburg in 2010, and you can find it on YouTube. Indeed, you can, and <laughs> it was it was one of those things. As soon as we stumbled across it, we knew we had to put it in the film. <laughs> And we knew we had to put it in our show. My guest, my guest is Alex Gibney, whose latest film is Citizen K, currently at the Film Forum on Houston Street in West Houston Street in, in New York and Manhattan, running through the 28th of this month. Uh, Mr. Gibney is the winner of an Oscar and I don't know how many other awards, Emmys, and uh, you've been uh, given awards at almost every film festival in the world. Uh, I even have one Grammy. I, I'm, I'm I'm proud to say, even though my, if you ever heard me sing, you would you you would be embarrassed for me. Well, I, I I don't think I I don't think I could match Vladimir Putin's Blueberry Hill. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, now why did you call the film Citizen K, which is of course a reminder of of uh, Citizen Kane? Uh, did you see uh, Khodorkovsky as uh, in some ways being like? Uh, like Kane? I think there was an aspect of that larger-than-life um, portrait of uh, a businessman, an outsized businessman who, um, you know, becomes part of a nation's character. But there's another aspect to K, which has to do with Kafka, which is Joseph K. There was kind of a double meaning there. Somebody who's lost in a, uh, in, in a system that's impossible to understand. And that's ultimately what happens to Khodorkovsky when Putin puts him in prison. Now, we, uh, my sense was that Putin's rise was continual, but uh, he enjoyed a lot of support in the Russian media. And then that changed for a time. And Arkady Ostrovsky, the Financial Times journalist, says that Putin 
has a very conspiratorial view of the world, one in which people have no free will. That's kind of scary. Well, there was a, it is scary. And, and look, it comes out of a moment. Um, Putin looked at um, what happened in the 90s in Russia, and he saw the criticism that Yeltsin faced. He also saw how in 96, all the TV networks rallied around Yeltsin because they were all afraid that Zuganov, the communist, might be elected. And indeed, they engaged in some actual fakery. You know, when Yeltsin had a heart attack, they they imported uh, one network, uh, imported all the furniture from his Moscow office and propped him up in a chair at his at his country house, like sort of like uh, Charlton Heston and El Cid um, and uh, and pretended that he was all well. It was just complete fakery in order to be able to see Yeltsin get elected. So so Putin took that lesson. And then later on, early in 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 uh, in his presidency, there was a famous disaster where the, uh, a submarine called the Kursk sank and Putin was ridiculed for his um, lack of concern for the sailors, his inability to do anything about it, his unwillingness to engage with other countries to perhaps save the sailors there. Uh, and, and Putin took that is a great lesson, which is if you don't control the media, then they can criticize you and the people can turn against you very quickly. So that was a big lesson for him. And, you know, uh, he took over, as as uh, as Ostrowski says, he t- or, or as suggests, he, he took over two key networks, NTV and what would become Channel One. There's footage of a woman challenging Putin and then a woman comes up behind her with a syringe. Did uh, was that on on Russian television? Uh, it was captured on film and it was presented in a documentary, which is where we found it. It's one of the most chilling images of the film because it it represents a moment where a woman is screaming at Putin, and then from behind, very softly, very delicately, a woman comes up, pats her on the shoulder, injects her with a needle, whereupon she promptly slumps. Um, so it, it was both a, a real moment and a kind of grim metaphor for the way um, dissent is silenced in, in Russia under Putin. On the whole, where did public sympathy or support lie at that time? With Putin or with Khodorkovsky, who was well, early on, very well known by Putin. the public? With early, early on, very much with Putin, because Khodorkovsky was one of these ugly oligarchs. And mm. you can understand that, you know, he was, here's a guy who had done very, very well for himself. He was a billionaire and responsible for laying off tens of thousands of people. He was reviled, I would say. But that opinion begins to change. Khodorkovsky uh, was first put in prison by Putin on sort of trumped up tax charges. Nobody really knew what tax laws were. And certainly Khodorkovsky was playing the game just as in, in the same way as everybody else was. But Khodorkovsky was the only one who was challenging Putin politically. He's the only one who went to prison. Be that as it may, there was a second trial, which was really more of a joke of a kind of a show trial, where they accused Khodorkovsky of, of, of having once accused him of not paying taxes on the oil he sold. This time they accused him uh, of having stolen all of his own oil, which is hard to imagine since they accused him of selling it beforehand. Anyway, Harakovsky this time was very clever in terms of how he dealt with that rather public trial. He treated it as a purposeful joke, and he showed everybody up as jokes, and he showed uh, that the 
that, that the prosecutors were not really prosecutors. They were fake prosecutors. They were actors playing in some kind of trumped up um, political drama. That got, I think, enormous sympathy because by that time people were beginning to sense that this was a system not unlike the old Soviet system that was rigged for the powerful. Uh, and so, you know, suddenly you see all these people, you know, turning out with posters, you know, free Hodakovsky, he's our man. So the oligarch becomes the dissident at large. And you say that he uh, arranged a deal with ExxonMobil. Uh, was that a way of protecting himself? Well, that's what he was in the process of doing just before Putin put him yeah. in prison. And so that's, uh, that's, I think, something that Putin also saw as a threat, not only because Hodakovsky was threatening to merge um, Russia's oil supply, national oil supply, with uh, an American company, but also that kind of merger would have brought um, the Russian economy into the world economy in a more integrated way, which I think would have challenged the kind of um, crony capitalism that um, could be more easily controlled by a ruthless leader like Putin. But doesn't the crony capitalism uh, make Russia vulnerable to the sanctions that have been imposed on it? Uh, or at least I think Russia is vulnerable it? to the sanctions. I think Russia is vulnerable to the sanctions. Are they, are they still there. in effect despite the fact that Trump uh, tried to get rid of them? Yes. The, many of the sanctions are still in effect, so often targeted at individuals. Um, and, uh, but yes, many of them are. And um, I, I think, though, the sanctions, and, and we show a little bit of Putin reacting to them uh, on television in the film, the sanctions uh, are a double-edged sword. They do punish uh, certain sectors of the Russian economy, but um, they also, I think, have the unintended consequence of uh, bolstering Putin politically in some ways, because he can talk about foreign interference and hold himself up as a, as a kind of nationalist um, who is, you know, trying to make Russia great again. And also the sanctions are against the oligarchs, which allows they are, Putin the then to take over, uh, uh, you know, uh, we worm his way into all sorts of places that he couldn't have gotten to otherwise. No. Well, what do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, when an oligarch is weakened, uh, Putin always seems to be strengthened. Uh, and I was wondering about whether uh, Khodorkovsky uh, didn't think what he thought would come of challenging Putin. Was he concerned that Putin had the coercive power of the state behind him? I think he may have been, but he was unwilling to buckle to that coercive power. I mean, in the wake of Putin putting... Khodorkovsky in prison, a lot of the other oligarchs did cut deals with Putin and became far more politically pliant. I mean, this imagine, like, this would be a little bit like Donald Trump putting Bloomberg in prison. Um, and, and so it was a big deal. Uh, and the other oligarchs uh, got the message and made it clear that they were not going to be part of anything political. And they would help, in fact, to do favors for Putin if he would do favors for them. A, a classic example of that in the contemporary context is a man named Evgeny Prigozhin, also known as Putin's chef. He is named in the Mueller indictment uh, because he, uh, his company privately ran the Internet Research Agency, which was responsible for so much of the trolling during the, during the 2016 election. 
Well, he was a former hot dog salesman <laughs> who Putin um, basically um, kept promoting until he gave him the concession to supply food to the Russian military, which made him fabulously wealthy. Well, there's a classic example where, okay, Vlad did a favor for me, perhaps I will do a flavor for Vlad. Sorry, perhaps I will do a favor for Vlad. And, 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 and suddenly his company is running um, the Internet Research Agency, in addition to running mercenary services in places that, uh, in Africa, for example, where um, Russia seems to have a kind of um, security interest. As we have seen in, in, uh, in Syria. Indeed. Now, um, so you said that Khodorkovsky was arrested, tried, imprisoned, and then uh, tried again. How many years did he spend in prison? Ultimately, 10. Now, I think Khodorkovsky felt, particularly based uh, on the uh, way the, the second show trial was conducted, that he was liable to spend the rest of his life in prison. But in 2013, Putin pardoned him. Khodorkovsky didn't find out about it except on television. He just happened to be watching television in prison, and suddenly Putin pardoned him and, and Pussy Riot at the same time. And do we know why uh, was this? Uh, well, I think it was a combination of factors. We don't know exactly why because Putin hasn't told us. But um, we know that he was being pressured <laughs> by international leaders, particularly uh, Angela Merkel and her um, uh, and her team. And there was a lot of pressure building on Putin because he wanted the Sochi Olympics to be a big success. So he thought this might be an interesting way of getting rid of a dissident who was becoming a kind of irritating martyr inside the country, while at the same time currying favor with the West, um, you know, in anticipation of this great international moment in Sochi. So we think that's part of the reason. Khodorkovsky also surmises that it may have been a, a certain kind of sentimentality on the part of Putin because Khodorkovsky's mother was quite ill and was, was dying of cancer. And so he would let her he would let him out so that he could spend a few months with her before she died. But was he released with the, the uh, idea that he would have to go into exile? That was kind of the uh, basic deal. And Khodorkovsky has not been back to Russia. Um, I think he would like to go back. But a few years ago, this murder we talked about briefly came back and reared its ugly head. And now out of the blue... Khodorkovsky, uh, a few years ago, was charged with the murder of that mayor of Neftugansk back in 1998. So if it goes back, he could be arrested and tried all over again. And charged and, and, and prosecuted for that murder. Did the experience of uh, spending all that time in prison change Khodorkovsky? I think it did. Um, and, uh, and I'm not the only one who thinks that. I mean, uh, there's a a, a wonderful reporter named Tatiana Lisova, who we interviewed in the film, she was a kind of energy um, sector expert. Um, she worked for Vedamosti. And she says it's a, it's a terrible thing to say, but I think prison changed Tolkovsky for the better. He became a better person because of prison. I think that's true. I think he saw what it's like not to have any power except the power to take your own life. He, he embarked on a number of hunger strikes to get better conditions for, for, for people in his company who are also in prison. Um, and I think he saw um, firsthand, 
you know, how important human rights are, how important is the rule of law, how important are certain civic values that uh, give every citizen a stake uh, and certain fundamental rights. So it, it changed him. There was a there was a line from one of his writings, and he wrote frequently while he was in prison. He says, I learned in prison that uh, life is not about having, it's about being. Well, that's a rather profound statement that would be hard to imagine, say, coming from another American oligarch, Donald Trump, if he were to land himself in prison. I'm speaking to Alex Gibney, talking about his latest film, calls Citizen K, currently at Film Forum on West Houston Street in Manhattan. Uh, the men who became oligarchs took advantage of, of fluid, poorly enforced Russian laws in the 1990s. But in time, did they become victims of that fluid legal system when it was redirected to serve Putin? Absolutely. I think that the kind of easy deals that they made when they were in power came back to haunt them when um, winds changed the other way. You know, it's, it's one, one, <coughs> one thing to think that it's good to be an oligarch because you can have so much influence. But if uh, suddenly uh, the political person who you thought was your friend becomes your enemy, uh, and there aren't, uh, there isn't a rule of law to protect you. Suddenly, what looked like such a good system before suddenly doesn't look so good. Now, did That's the, the downside of gangster capitalism. Did the Russian government manage to reacquire assets that oligarchs like Khodorkovsky had acquired in the 1990s? Is, is it the government owned? Are we returning to some degree to to government ownership of of industry? I think what you're returning to is a kind of oligarchs 2.0. I mean. Um, Yukos became broken up and um, uh, uh, and then reemerged as a company called Rosneft, which is run by one of Putin's cronies, a guy named Igor Sechin. Um, and so it's run as a business. It's not run as, as, as a kind of classic communist enterprise, but it's run very much in this kind of crony capitalist manner. Uh, you you say that perceptions, public perceptions of Khodorkovsky change. One person on the street says that Russia is not a country of law; it's a country of dictatorship. Have Russians given up on the possibility that the country might uh, become a, a, a real democracy? Uh, although we, we, they still to continue to protest, they do. There are protests, and um, and Putin himself hasn't given up on the idea of the illusion of democracy. Uh, he hasn't installed himself as kind of Kim Jong-un or, or Xi in, in, in China. It's still important for Putin to uh, pretend that um, Russia is a vigorous democracy. Interesting, you, the, the quote you said of the man on the street, that's actually Boris Nemtsov, mm -hmm. who was um, uh, a... Um, a rather famous uh, politician in Russia who was very much a Putin opponent, uh, who was gunned down uh, in front of the Kremlin, allegedly by people close to Putin, though nobody knows exactly who. So um, <clears throat> it, it's interesting, though. One of the things we encountered when we were there making the film was something that the Russians call election theater. An election theater is basically the fiction making around elections in Russia, where you have a lot of candidates engaged in very fiery debate in one Ksenia subject, the daughter of that, you know, former mayor of St. Petersburg, 
throws water in the face of somebody else in the midst of a you know fiery debate about um, issues of the day. But interestingly enough, in that debate, <laughs> Putin is not present because he's going to be the one that everybody knows will win. The other person who's not present is a guy named Alexei Navalny, who is a key opposition leader in um, in Russia now, but he's not permitted to run by law. And they law. keep on arresting him. They do, so much so that he has a set of prison linens <laughs> that he goes to because it's so familiar to him. It's like, oh, back in prison again. You know, he's in and out of prison so many times. Yet it's interesting. I mean, he's not been exiled to some gulag. You know, he's in and out of prison as if to both emphasize the control that uh, – Putin holds uh, Putin and the and the government holds over him, but at the same time, as if not to put too hard a boot on his neck, so that people would get upset, as if there are you know real uh, rights. The uh, the head of the Moscow Times says that Putin decided Russia could not live without him. That uh, that power led him to think that he was Russian, he was Russia, and without Putin, there is no Russia. Uh, is that something a number of politicians share today? Uh, Khodorkovsky says that he is Putin is a kind of chameleon. Well, in that sense, he's a good politician. Politicians often do that. And, and, and Khodorkovsky talks about Putin as a kind of classic KGB figure. So politicians and spies share certain traits in common. And one of them is their chameleon-like quality. That is to say, appearing to be... Um, you know, if you're meeting with a baker, you're like a baker. If you're you're meeting with a liberal, you, you you try to be a little bit more liberal. With a conservative, you try to be a little bit more conservative. And Putin was good at flattering people and trying to, um, uh, particularly early on, and, and get them to um, believe that you know he believed the same thing as they did. But I think this this turn and and Derek Sauer is an interesting character, the guy that you quote the head of the Moscow Times for many years. You know, he believed that in the early days um, of Putin's uh, presidency that he did a lot of good for the country, brought back some stability, a sense of national pride, um, but that over time he's more than uh, overstayed his welcome and become this kind of character who identifies with Russia as an extension of himself. And in that, I think we can see some similarities in this country. And some people are saying that he's the new czar. He uh, gave a state of the, uh, the state, state of the nation speech last Wednesday. And in his speech, Putin made proposals that wouldn't affect, allow him to re retain power without violating the law that prevents a person from serving more than two terms as prime minister. Well, as president, and, and as that's president, and, yeah. but but so so what he's going to do is the, the same trick that he pulled in 2012 when you know um, the nation erupted in protest, and that is to move from president to prime minister. Um, you know, so he'll be termed out as president in 2024, I believe, uh, and then he will move everybody thinks, to prime minister, uh, an office that he's just <laughs> endowed or is trying to endow with um, a, a series of extraordinary powers. Hodakovsky, by the way, believes that in the long run, and Hodakovsky takes the long view in a lot of things, that may that may end up being a good thing, that, that by empowering the prime minister and to some extent the representative body, the Duma, um, that... Uh, 
when Putin finally dies, unless he can find some sort of artificial intelligence um, robot to continue his reign, uh, that, um, you know, power will be more diffuse when he, for, for, his, for whomever his successor might be. Doesn't Khodorkovsky remain extraordinarily wealthy? He does. He, uh, he's down... I remember being at the at the Ken Lay press conference where Ken Lay confided in those of us who were there uh, that he was down to his last 20 million. Well, Hodakovsky is down to his last 500 million. So mm-hmm. he's 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 no longer a multi-billionaire, but he has plenty of money left. And he founded a group in London called Open Russia. What does it do? This is the second incarnation of Open Russia. Even while he was in um, Russia in the early 2000s, he, he founded another version of Open Russia, which was designed to inculcate Russians in civic values, to teach them about forms of democracy and to empower schools that were rigorous. And, um, you know, it, it was quite effective then. Today, it tries to do the same thing in terms of inculcating Russians from afar with civic values. And it also does a lot of investigative work um, in terms of looking into corruption in the Kremlin, and uh, both by Putin and by people close to him. So it, it acts as a kind of um, dissident group in exile. Your film has a lot of extraordinary footage in it. Uh, I would imagine in some cases it might have been, must have been rather difficult for you to acquire it. Do you have to make special deals in Russia? I think the deal, the special deal in Russia for the material that we were able to acquire was mostly called fair use. Um, You know, we went to uh, the key Russian archives to see if they would play ball with us, and they would not. But we did find over time uh, a number of uh, great materials, some through foreign sources like the BBC, uh, but uh, often through uh, dark web or Russian Internet um, mechanisms. In, in, indeed, that was a, a, um, a vein I had mined earlier on when I made my film about Scientology. Some of the best footage we found of Scientology was on the Russian web. Now, do you know, well, I, I assume Khodorkovsky has seen the film. Have people, he has. Have people in Russia seen it? Uh, <laughs> there was a private screening that, that we helped to organize uh, in which a variety of different kinds of people were there, everybody from um, people representing the government to, to independent journalists. But uh, Hodakovsky tells me that it's widely seen in Russia. It's just nobody pays for it. It's been mm-hmm. <laughs> thoroughly pirated, I'm told. So uh, as long as you know the right password, you can get it on your computer. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, people can see it here at the Film Forum on West Housen Street, running through next Thursday, is it, the 28th? That's right. And uh, and, and, and thereafter, it's going to you know spread to theaters throughout the country and will ultimately, uh, later in the spring, I believe, be streamed on Amazon. And you have another project in the works? You always seem to. Well, there, there's one that was just announced. It'll be the South by Southwest Film Festival. It's a it's a it's a funny little project called Crazy Not Insane. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to talking to you about it, and thank you so much for being on our show today. Thanks, Leonard. A pleasure always to talk to you. 
And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Hugh Sansom, who produced this segment. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopez at Lodge on Facebook and Twitter. We welcome your comments. And uh, also on our website, LeonardLopetAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows and also write to us. We hope you'll join us tomorrow when our favorite brother-sister language experts, Catherine and Ross Petrus, will be taking your calls. See you then. 